electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. I'm John Fortin. Here is what's ahead. Investors anxiously awaiting Fed Chair Powell's big speech at Jackson Hole tomorrow. We're going to look at what a transformation into a dove would look like for Powell and what that would mean for your money. Plus, the Peloton CEO compares the company to turning a cargo ship, which tries to evolve. But it's not the only company hoping to pull off a transformation as demand for its products wanes. We're going to get some companies going through a post-pandemic reinvention and ask, can they succeed? And making payments, making a fashion statement, and making yourself look good. We've got the action story and the trade on Affirm, Gap, and Ulta in today's earnings exchange. But we begin with the markets and Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. John, the market's holding up off of the highs. There doesn't seem to be too much jitteriness outright about Jay Powell's speech tomorrow, even though that is the main focus. Let's take a look at the sectors and the indexes. Uh, Dow, S&P, NASDAQ all up off of their highs. We're up two days in a row on the S&P. Uh, we're down for the week, but we're up almost 1% for the month for the S&P. We are up 1% for the NASDAQ composite. Dow Industrials is just up fractionally. The bottom line here is it's the market's not acting like Powell is going to suddenly turn into a new, higher level of hawkishness. I say this because look at the growth sectors. They're bouncing. NVIDIA, frankly, did not have great guidance. It opened at 168. Look at this. It's now 177. They're ignoring the decline in gaming. They're focusing uh, on sequential growth in the data center business. Okay, we'll see. Marble Technology is going to be out after the bell. Micron, Advanced Micro, they're all doing well here. Other tech, strong, even though Salesforce wasn't that good. Salesforce is trading down. But other big cap tech, generally okay. Alphabet, Apple, and Microsoft all on the upside. I also say markets holding up well because defensive names, uh, pharmaceutical stocks like Bristol Myers and Merck uh, and consumer staples names like Kroger and Kimberly Clark are generally down. So what's going on? Well, they're buying growth and they're generally selling defensive names. That's not a sign of a market that's concerned about much more aggressive Fed rate hikes. Maybe we'll hear that from Powell, but the market's not acting like that. The other thing I want to point out is China tech stocks. We're getting a rare, nice little rally here. Number one, China announced a big uh, stimulus program. But more importantly, there's a lot of rumors around that Chinese regulators are talking uh, with their auditors or the people who are auditing these companies to see if they can find a deal with U.S. regulators. They've been trying to get access to the audit books of these companies for years. They haven't been able to. These China-listed stocks, that, these stocks that list here in, China, in the United States, are all moving up today. You can see Alibaba up 8 percent, Pinduoduo up 11 percent. Maybe, John, we will get a deal with China despite all of the issues, the broader issues related to China-U.S. relations. John, back to you. Yeah, Bob, maybe Lucy's going to let him kick it this time. We will see. <laughs> uh, investors, meanwhile, clearly in wait-and-see mode as the Fed's biggest players speak at Jackson Hole. In fact, three of the five lightest volume days in the market happened in the past week. Question many are asking themselves is whether Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, will begin a slow pivot to a dovish stance. Earlier today, Fed Presidents Esther George and Patrick Harker telling our Steve Leisman that patience will be key to their next move. 
we certainly have done a lot of uh, interest rate increase in a short amount of time. Uh, nothing I've seen in my time uh, on the FOMC. And I think we should still expect that some of that policy will work with a lag. So we've seen it hit the housing market pretty quickly, but I think its full effects may not be seen for some time. We need to get to a restrictive stance, which we'll do by the end of the year. And then we need to see how things turn out. That is, we, we don't need to rush way up and then way down. We need to go up and sit for a while and let things play out. We talk about long and variable lags. We actually have to believe it and let this play out a little bit. Joining me now, David Wessel, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. David, uh, a lot of people I've talked to think the Fed is talking tougher than they really intend to be. Are we going to get some tough talk you expect over the next few hours? I, I think so. I think that's wishful thinking on the part of some people in the markets that the Fed believes it's basically won the war against inflation, that it'll be freaked out if the economy slows too much, and some people are even predicting rate cuts in 2023. I expect, without any inside information, that Powell will emphasize that his priority is bringing down inflation and they will keep interest rates up until they make progress on that goal. There's a difference between keeping rates up and continuing to raise them aggressively. And it seems at this point, a lot of people are wondering um, how far is going to be far enough and how quickly is the Fed going to get there? How are we going to know that aside from, you know, when it happens? Well, we, we won't really know, but that's one of the advantage of these Fed projections every, every other month where they tell us uh, what they think the terminal rate is. There seems to be widespread agreement if you look at Fed forecasts and what people in the markets are saying that they're going to take rates up perhaps another percentage point by the end of this year. I think the big question is what happens after that. And that's when the decisions gets really tough. It's not very hard to go from zero to two and a quarter percent when you have eight percent inflation. But as Esther George said to you or the other Fed FOMC president, the lags are long and variable. So I think the close calls will come early next year. It'll depend, of course, on the data, but it'll all depend on what risk they're willing to take. Are they more worried about too much inflation or are they more worried about a recession? And we don't really know yet. How much do you think the consumer behavior around the holiday season, the impact on retail, all of that will play into it? I mean, we've seen, you know, we're talking about real estate and the impact there of rising rates. We've seen gas prices ease off, which were a big component of overall inflation. How do you expect that and Q4 to work together? Well, I think there are two things that the Fed will be watching in that regard. One is what's happening to consumer spending. And if it looks like consumer spending is unusually strong or usually weak relative to past holiday seasons, they'll take note of that. But I think even more important is they seem to be very fixated on inflation expectations. We don't have very good measures of inflation expectations, but they seem to look at the surveys we have, the Michigan survey, and others, and so I think they'll be watching very carefully. They, one reason they talk so tough on inflation is they wanna prevent an inflationary psychology from taking hold. They wanna make sure that people understand that today's inflation is not gonna to be tomorrow's inflation. And that's one reason why they speak so uh, strongly and harshly about that. They wanna prevent inflation from getting embedded in wage and price and bargaining and rent decisions. Speaking of wages, what do you expect to see in Q4 
as so many retailers are looking for uh, a spike, you know, peak season, there's, they're always scrambling to try to find more workers, but that's happening at a time when the supply of workers is unusually tight. They might have to pay more, which actually ends up adding to inflation and cutting profits. Right. Well, so far, you know, real wages adjusted for inflation have been falling, not rising. Um, I think they're going to bind. They apparently retailers have a lot of inventory, so that's going to limit how much they can raise prices. And they are going to have trouble hiring workers if conditions continue. I've been surprised at how strong the job market has been. I expect it'll slow down, so they may have an easier time. One really interesting issue is that immigration is way down, and that's an important source of labor supply growth in the U.S. So I'll be interested in seeing whether the business community pushes even harder to open the doors to immigration, uh, legal immigration, of course, in order to get deal some of their labor supply issues. Yeah. All right. We'll be watching it. David Wessel from the Brookings Institution. Thank you. You're welcome. And do not miss our exclusive interview from Jackson Hole with St. Louis Fed President James Bullard coming up on Power Lunch. That's the next hour, 2 p.m. Eastern. And what does all this Fed speak mean for investors? Could Powell say anything that might give this market the all clear to get a rally going again? My next guest isn't so sure, says stick with the bees, boring and blue chip. With me is Victoria Green, CIO at G Squared Private Wealth. Victoria, um, the market seems to want the all clear, whether it's explicitly given to them or not. So um, might that reverse this time when we hear from Powell tomorrow or are people looking to jump the gun? Well, no, I think people already jumped the gun. So I think we already think there is this all clear. And I think if you listen to Fed speak last week and even today with George and Harker, that our job's not done yet. We might be above 4% for a while. You know, you're, they keep saying like, hey, market, we're still hawkish because the biggest risk to the Fed is when there's a dislocation between expectations and what the Fed does. So at this point, expectations seem to think, oh, well, we're gonna they're going to roll over early 2023. Maybe we have another 100 basis points by the end of the year. And I think... Powell has to come out and he has to reset those because that's the most dangerous market for the Fed when there's expectations of a dovish market and then the Fed continues to tighten. If you look at the market probability of the hike in September, it's literally at 0.67, meaning about 50% on 50 basis points and 50% on 75. So I do think this market's in front of itself. I think they're going to continue to hike. I think the numbers are going to continue to put pressure on the economy and we're nowhere near neutral. So everybody who's saying it's dovish, I think they're misreading the tea leaves a little bit. So where do you put your money uh, if, if that's your expectation? Well, like we said, we like to be defensive and boring right now. We don't think the value trade is done yet. So we're looking at some good names with strong balance sheets, cash flows and dividends. We also really don't mind the six month Treasury bill at 3.1 percent. Because if you look at the curve, really the only steepness in the Treasury curve is between zero and six months. Then between six months and 30 years, you're 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 nowhere. So you're flat or inverted. You're almost like 32 basis points inverted in the two and 10. So short treasury yields are good. Play defense, look at value, possibly look to trim off some of those high flyers off of the June bottom. We've hit some big resistances, right? We hit the 200 day moving average. We kind of hit overbought. Um, and so I think the risk of reversal, and I still think this is a bear market rally, means you want to be playing with a quality defensive trade right now. Yeah, I see a bunch of energy names in there, IBM, but then CrowdStrike? That's not no, that's exactly. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. 
everybody needs a little bit of growth, right? Like I wouldn't be a good investment advisor if I didn't speak out of both sides of my mouth. So I think CrowdStrike, they report earnings next week. I think they have a very unique product. Yeah, their multiples crazy and they're definitely the growth stock that I was just poo-pooing. But they have this uh, unique product because it's cloud-based as well as AI-based. Yeah, Microsoft is, is maybe their nearest competition, but their sales win rate has been so high against other legacy endpoints. First off, everybody is spending more money on cybersecurity. It's one area of the business and IT spending that companies really can't afford to cut. And they've been doing a great job of picking up new sales as well as cross-selling their other modules beyond just endpoint detection. So I think you're going to continue to see strong earnings. They beat like five of the last six quarters. And I think you're going to see this company be able to continue this growth trajectory they've been on. So we'll see what they, they say under the hood. But if you want a little bit of fun in the portfolio and a little high growth, I think that's a good place to be. How careful do investors have to be, though, because it's had a bit of a run in August, especially after Palo Alto Networks kind of performed. It was already a little expensive like CrowdStrike, but, you know, outperformed in its earnings. Uh, What what should investors be prepared for action wise, even if CrowdStrike does well? Yeah, so options are are saying it's maybe a plus or minus 12% move. It's it's definitely a volatile stock. This is not one of the boring ones I was referring to earlier. <laughs> so it's probably going to move. But if you look at EPS, like look at NVIDIA, like you were talking about, really not great earnings. Even with their, their, their reset that they did earlier in the month, you know, they missed pretty hard on gaming and they're still up today. So this has been this weird quarter where bad EPS actually wasn't very badly punished. And especially in some of these tech stocks, you've seen the market be very forgiving, except for maybe uh, Salesforce is about the only one that's suffering recently. So I think, yes, expect some volatility on earnings day, but we've also seen a forgiving market to these tech stocks. All right. Victoria Green uh, from G Squared Private Wealth. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now coming up, Tesla's three for one stock split goes into effect today. So what's the next catalyst for the EV company? And is the street getting too optimistic? Top tech analyst Tony Sakanagi joins me next with his take. Plus, Ulta Beauty is flat since January, but Gap and Affirm are down more than 40% each. What's the street looking for when all of these report after the bell? we got the good, the bad, and the ugly ahead in earnings exchange. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. A long-time Tesla bull, Ron Barron, making a bold call today on Squawk Box about the future of the automaker, sounding more optimistic even than before. I am so excited. In the next 10 years, I think that Tesla is going to be uh, the largest uh, company in the world. And in the 10 years after that, I think it'll be challenged by SpaceX, uh, uh, which could become uh, the largest company in the world. Okay. Well, he's not the only one bullish. Wall Street has shown the company a lot of love recently after the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. But is the positive tone misplaced? With us, Tony Sakanagi, Managing Director at Bernstein. Uh, Tony, um, people lose a lot of money betting against Tesla. But what does the company have to do to be as big in the next 10 years as Ron Barron expects? Uh, well, good afternoon, John, and thanks for having me on the show. Look, Tesla's executing extremely well, and it has dominant share of the electric vehicle marketplace today. It has about 20% of all EVs sold globally are Tesla branded. So, you know, arguably, if they were able to hold share and have 20% share of the EV market and all cars were EVs, you know, 90 million cars a year, Tesla would be selling 18 million cars a year instead of about one and a half million today. So, you know, the, the question is, can can Tesla maintain its share over time? And, you know, I think that is a, a question. There's no automaker today who has more than uh, about nine or 10 percent share. And that would be uh, Toyota and Volkswagen. Um, and the market is becoming more. Uh, competitive than it has been. You have all the traditional OEMs who have jumped into this marketplace, but you have many new EV OEMs, particularly in China, who have joined in. So mm. it, it may be a tall order to believe that Tesla can continue to maintain share in the face of more and more EVs coming to the marketplace. But here's my worry, though, is that uh, that saying that is a little like saying back 20 years ago, here's what percentage of the PC market Apple would have to grow into to justify it being worth anything near, say, a half a trillion dollars. We know it's beyond that, and not because it gained a ton of share in the PC market, because it leveraged its loyalty, its brand, its platform and vertical integration in a way that nobody else in that business could and did. Might Tesla do something similar? Do we risk in the bear case looking at it too much like a traditional car company? I think that's a great question, and, and there are several potential opportunities uh, that Tesla can create for itself. Uh, the whole world of autonomous driving, uh, which is an offering that Tesla currently sells today for $15,000 per car and has very little take up, is a significant market opportunity. Uh, Tesla's also talked about uh, a humanoid, a, a robot in essence, that could displace manufacturers um, you know, or manual labor in the workforce going forward, and that this could be a significant opportunity. They're also delving into areas like uh, insurance as well. So there is significant option value uh, from Tesla. I, I think in Tesla's case, perhaps, you know, similarly to Apple, is just betting on innovation. Um, you know, Apple was only a, you know, a Mac or PC company um, 20 years ago, and then everything changed with the introduction of the iPod and then ultimately the iPhone, and it has evolved into a totally different company uh, going forward. And, and, and the question is, does, you know, does one bet on Tesla's innovation going forward? And I think there is 
some of that option value that is priced into the stock, you know, given that Tesla today basically trades at, you know, a higher valuation than all the other auto companies in the world combined. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Apple specifically. They got an event coming up on September 7th where we expect to see the next generation iPhone, um, you know, and, and, and see probably a bit more than that. The stock has been outperforming the market. It's near its highs, um, arguably justifiably, because the luxury consumer has been doing pretty well and they've got some innovation that has allowed them to main share, maintain share and profits. Do you see risks here? Um, well, I, you know, I think the real question for Apple, especially around this time of year, is how strong will the next iPhone cycle be? So iPhone is still 50% of Apple's revenues and about 50% of its profits. Um, and we've had two very strong years for iPhone um, on the back of strength in the consumer and on the back, quite frankly, of two years prior to that where iPhone sales were quite weak. And so that's really the operative question is, can Apple have a third year of strong iPhone sales? How much of that is, would... is up to Apple and how much of that is up to carriers and how much they're going to subsidize? Um, I think a lot of it is um, ultimately driven by Apple's ability to get people to upgrade. Now, carriers can influence that to some degree with, with promotion, certainly. Um, but... You know, it's also up to Apple to deliver something that's compelling that people feel a need to go up there, go out there and actually upgrade their phone. So I think it's principally Apple. And, you know, ultimately, the iPhone 14 is expected to be much more evolutionary than revolutionary. And so the question will be, are there enough upgraders after two pretty strong years for Apple to continue to have robust sales for the iPhone 14? And yes, carriers at the margin can help with incremental uh, promotions. But at the end of the day, it's really about is the phone compelling enough to get someone who's maybe only had a phone for two or three years to upgrade again? And, and yeah. that's the operative question. And for the past, I don't know, seven or eight years at least, most of the people I've heard have said, oh, this is evolutionary, not revolutionary. And half the time, Apple actually has a pretty good cycle. So we'll, we'll see. Tony Sakanagi, thank you. Thanks, John. Now still ahead, Amazon Prime becoming the exclusive home to Thursday night football with its first game kicking off tonight. How high are the stakes for the league and what's at stake for Amazon? We will debate. Plus, can the stocks that surged the most in 2020 make a post-pandemic pivot? We will look at some of the so-called one-trick ponies struggling to get back on track. The exchange is back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now, mildly in the green. The Dow up 
just shy of 60 points. The S&P about a half a percent. The Nasdaq close to one percent. Plug Power moving higher today after striking a deal with Amazon. Fuel cell company will provide Amazon with liquid green hydrogen beginning in 2025. Plug Power says the deal will help it reach its goal of $3 billion in revenue by 2025, while Amazon says the agreement will help it reach its own goal of net zero carbon by, I'm guessing, 2040. And speaking of Amazon, telehealth names are moving higher today after the retail giant said it plans to shutter its Amazon Care telehealth service at the end of the year. Now, Tyler Matheson for CNBC News Update. Bye. John, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Uvalde School Board unanimously has agreed to fire Pete Arredondo. He's the school district police chief broadly criticized for his response to the Texas school shooting back in May. The meeting came exactly three months after a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary. Arredondo is the first officer to be dismissed over the response to the tragedy. Tonight on the news, the Uvalde community's reaction to that decision and what Arredondo's attorney wrote in his scathing 17-page letter. The death toll from a Russian rocket attack on a Ukrainian train station in the surrounding area climbs to 25 now. This according to Ukrainian officials. That number includes at least two children. The attack supposedly targeted a military train and came on Ukraine's Independence Day. Meanwhile, South Korea signing a $2.25 billion contract to help construct turbine buildings for Egypt's first nuclear power plant. That plant being built in partnership with Russia's state-owned Rosatom. That uh, news comes as America and their allies continue to push an economic pressure campaign to isolate Russia over its invasion and war in Ukraine. John, back to you. Tyler, thank you. Now coming up, we're going to get another check on the consumer with Affirm, Gap, and Ulta Beauty on deck with results, the key things to watch, and how to position on all three. Earnings Exchange is next. Welcome back, everybody. Time for Earnings Exchange, and today we're going to take a trip to the mall. We finally got the action, the story, and the trade on charging, clothing, and contouring with Affirm Gap and Ulta Beauty on deck. First up is Affirm, the buy now, pay later name trading near the flat line ahead of results and having a rough year, down 70% so far in 2022, but it's also doubled off of its May lows. So what do investors want to hear today? Steve Kovac joins us with a preview. Steve. Hey there, John. Yeah, a couple things to watch on this report tonight. First of all is gross merchandise value. That's basically the total value of the transactions being done through a firm. It was about $4 billion last quarter, so we're expecting that to see growth there because basically the more people buying stuff through a firm, the better a firm does. And then there's transaction costs. This is this huge expense every quarter for a firm. Uh, they're guiding to 355 million or up to $355 million for those costs and then well over a billion for the entire fiscal year. Uh, and finally, just, you know, broadly speaking, any insight into the consumer? We're, just like we've heard from so many other retailers and payment companies this earning season, where is the consumer at? Is there a pullback in consumer spending? And what kind of consumer is spending? And then finally, just looking forward, in just about a month or so, John, we're going to get Apple's uh, Apple Pay Later, which is a competitor, direct competitor to a firm, going to be built in every single iPhone that has Apple Pay. 
And look, Apple Pay is a huge business for Apple. They're really digging into the wallet. And Affirm is just kind of this single feature, whereas this is more of a broader finance ecosystem on the iPhone that Affirm is going to have to compete with, John. All right, Steve, thanks. And Delano Sapporo joins us with the trade. He's the CEO at New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Delano, I mean, it's down a lot, but it's also up a lot. Um, what do they need to do to sort of prove that they're not one of these pandemic plays that deflates from here? Yes, down a lot and up a lot. Volatility on this stock, John. And I think, you know, if you're looking at some of the positive sides, they're growing their partnerships and they're obviously one of the leaders in the buy now, pay later space. But um, as Steve was mentioning, I'm looking into the consumer and there are signs and trends that are showing that with this weaker economic environment, that the trends for their assets on their books is getting a little bit weaker, right? Their delinquencies are growing year to date. And they've mentioned that they might be around the 2019 range uh, going forward. So oh, I think that's something that we want to you know, hear more about on their call. And of course, you have the regulatory headwinds that I think get worked out over time and, and competition. Competition is coming into the area with Apple obviously coming into the area. That's going to be a big thing for them to struggle with as well. Yeah. And they've diversified away from Peloton, but that used to be a huge, huge source of revenue from them. And we saw how bad Peloton's quarter was. We'll see if that comes into play as well. Next up, Gap, the retail giant, up just over 3% today ahead of earnings, but having a tough 2022 with shares down 42% this year. Inventory gluts, high inflation, continue to plug the retail space this year. CNBC's Courtney Reagan joins us with the story. Court, is this going to be like Macy's, like Nordstrom, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, this one, John, is tough. To be honest, they've just had some execution issues for quite some time, and they're operating in a segment of retail that is really the most depressed right now. Consumers are not super interested in apparel, especially middle market apparel, which is almost exactly where Gap's main brands seem to play. This company has struggled under the weight of the pressures from the supply chain, both the cost and the logistics. They've detailed it really to the dollar amount, and it's been really, really big numbers that they've had to work around and through in order to get the product to the customers. But the problem is, once it arrives, the shoppers don't seem to want it. They're also in the middle of a CEO search. And so I think investors just have a lot of questions. How in the world are you going to entice shoppers to buy this category when it's a category sort of last on the list when everyone's dealing with inflationary pressures right now. And oh, by the way, what's this go forward strategy when you're still waiting on a CEO? So a lot of questions with this one, John. And unfortunately, I just don't think expectations are very high. Oh, well, at least expectations aren't very high, I guess. Delano, what do you say? I mean, is there a silver lining in here anywhere in this Kanye West garbage bag uh, of, <laughs> of an inventory challenge and location challenge that Gap's got? Yeah, John, I love that analogy. In this, in this time, with football coming up, we could go to analogy of football. They have to go back to the playbook. And I think when you have a lot of things that were mentioned about on, on the downside, it was all stuff that can be actually corrected, right? If you look at the inventory uh, mismanagement, that can be corrected. There was a lot of inventory on their books. That was their non-core sizes, um, especially on the old, Na old Navy front. So that excess inventory was discounted. And I think when you shake up a little bit of management and you're able to do some things differently, uh, you could right-size that. Obviously, on the huge freight costs, a lot of that was due to them transporting through air, which um, they can make some changes there as well. 
So so looking forward, I think you can better some things on the inventory side, right? Allow for margin expansion, uh, less discounting, and have a better uh, supply chain, the better bettering of the supply chain environment. There could be things going forward. And of course, you know, the one another silver line is, you know, dividends. They're still one of the higher yielding um, dividend companies of their peers. And so I think, you know, through this struggling stock, you know, investors can hold on and kind of look forward to a little bit forward to the future. Ah, the, that makes me worry, though. Uh, are they going to be able to hold on to those dividend levels? And I wonder, this is one of those situations where maybe tough talk helps them if they kind of take the target perspective and say we're going to take care of all these issues uh, in one fell swoop. But if they're doing a CEO search, are they in position to have that sort of decisive executive action? Yeah, that's a really good question, John. I'm not I'm not exactly sure that I know the answer to it, but I think investors would really like to know. I mean, before they started the CEO search, frankly, they were doing a lot of things to try to help move the company forward. They were closing stores, really trying to right size some of these brands, trying to fix the inventory. There's sort of been this rotation of executives, particularly the more troubled brands like Banana Republic. So it's not as if they were standing still. They were trying to make changes. It just wasn't fully working or had not yet worked um, so far. And so we'll see what they're able to do as they are still in the search for a permanent CEO. I'm not sure how much they're going to be able to tell us about that go forward strategy, how much of this quarter may be a kitchen sink, just sort of get all the bad stuff out while they can, if they can, to your point, John, uh, sort of like what many of the analysts pointed to as an explanation for what Target did here. We'll have to wait and see. Well, a lot of retail executives trying to put lipstick on a pig. And metaphorically, that's good for Ulta, the beauty brand up 18% over the past three months. The cosmetics brand has a dazzling earnings record with EPS beating consensus 18 of the past 20 quarters. Courtney, I, I guess metaphorical pig lipstick, not one of their products, but this is doing better than a lot of retail categories. Is there any reason to think they won't continue to outperform? No, I think it's going to be a very strong quarter. And if they did sell lipstick for pigs, they would probably have strong sales in that category too, John. I mean, things have really been on fire for Ulta. And then more in general, the beauty brand has been one of the stronger categories so far this quarter, whether we're talking about beauty at Target, whether we're talking about beauty at Kohl's that had sort of suffer points elsewhere. We just heard from international makeup brand Cody today. They had very strong sales, particularly at the high end. And so I expect Ulta to basically be firing on all cylinders as they have been. Even in tough economic times, consumers are not giving up their skincare and beauty routines. And I would say as we reemerge into the world, perhaps it's become a little bit more important more recently. We're not seeing evidence of trade down. Consumers, as a matter of fact, are sort of gobbling up some of these more prestige brands, which, of course, helps on the margin. So I, I think there's probably a lot to like here. That being said, this company has been on fire for some time. So I'll let Delano sort of tell us about how he thinks about the valuation. Uh, but I think as far as the fundamental there's likely going to be a pretty good quarter here. Yeah, Delano, any cracks in the foundation here? You want to take a powder? <laughs> no, I, I'm not seeing any cracks as well. I think this is consensus for all of us. You know, they've done, uh, the trading has obviously been doing well year to date. Um, if you look at it, they could grow same store sales or they could get net new stores and they do great on both sides. So they've done a little bit better on the net new store side, right? And they have 
roughly 1.4 million to open up a new store and the return on invested capital just over 30 percent on a lot of those stores that they opened so they've been doing really well compounding and growing earnings over the past decade and if we take it back to that consumer piper sandler generation z survey that actually had a strong brand amongst gen z um it's obviously evident that it's still trending towards a strong side for alto beauty so you know this is still you know an opportunity for people to hold their buy if they're already in the company oh sounds good and i'm out of puns so thank you Courtney Reagan and Delano Sapporo. Still ahead, Chinese EV stocks having a rough two months and the Chinese government just dealt the companies another blow. We're gonna have the details next. Welcome back. Chinese EV charging stocks higher today on the back of the government injecting more stimulus money into the economy. But the stocks have been under pressure. NEO off 54% from its year high. Xpeng off by about 66%. And Li Auto off by 25% from its high. And now some charging stations in southwest China are going offline with the droughts knocking out hydropower. Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with the details. Eunice. Exactly, John. Um, most of the charging problems are in two large cities in the southwest, Chongqing and Chengdu, and they have a combined population of 46 million people. As you were just talking about, the power issues are uh, generally the most severe in that area because the droughts have hit uh, the hydropower for the region. So EV, so EV makers like Tesla, uh, NEO, as well as Xpeng, which all have their own charging stations, have indicated to their users that their stations are either suspended or operating on a restricted basis. And NEO has gone as far as to say, or as far to, to call on its, its users to share their home chargers until September 20th. Now, there are also other services uh, that are operated by, uh, for example, a charging station operator called TELD. Um, also, the state grid have been encouraging uh, users to uh, go ahead and, and charge at off hours. So um, usually overnight, um, they're offering steep discounts. So what a lot of drivers are doing is that they're spending time either overnight, um, sometimes they said on average two hours, uh, charging their EVs, uh, also wasting from their perspective a lot of time driving around looking for a charging station that is open. Now, the problems are, tend to be limited to this region. Um, so far, for example, in Beijing, the charging stations are uh, operating normally, but the Southwest looks as though it's going to still have more problems with power because the province of Sichuan has said that it's going to extend its power rationing until Saturday, while uh, Chongqing said that it's going to extend those power cuts indefinitely. So obviously going to have an impact on industry there. And in fact, a car maker Honda said that uh, their uh, plant in Chongqing is shut for the rest of the week and they don't have any plans yet to open that plant until they hear more from the government. John? Eunice, now here when we have things like blackouts in local areas, people buy generators just in case for next time. Is this going to affect demand for EVs at least in, in the southwest in the future or encourage people to have backups? I, I think that it, it's having an impact on people maybe rethinking whether or not it makes a whole lot of sense for them to have EVs just because they're dealing with all of these issues at the moment. Um, as you said, only in that part of the country. However, China is the, 
at least one of the largest EV markets in the world. And the success of the EV is so hardcore built in to government policy. And the government really wants this country to move to EVs and has been throwing a whole lot of subsidies to drivers uh, um, and to companies to make that happen. So Eunice, unless the hassles go on for a really long time, um, about, it looks as though the direction on the whole isn't going to change. What about solar? I would think if there's a drought, then it's probably not too cloudy, which would mean there's plenty of sun. And if there were solar panels in place or maybe even subsidies, you know, incentives for residential solar, that those folks would be fine. Will it perhaps uh, lead to a push in that direction? That's really interesting that you said that because there are actually uh, quite a few factories that have been trying to find creative solutions to the fact that the power cuts are affecting the factories. So they've actually been putting, some companies have been going ahead and putting um, solar paneling on their um, rooftops. Uh, others have gone and, and gotten, uh, been able to source a generator. Um, in terms of residences, though, there hasn't been as much of a need for solar paneling because um, the government has been um, prioritizing the homes for uh, power. And that's one of the reasons why NEO, I would think, um, is encouraging their mm. users to share home chargers because at least you have the electricity supply there. A great literal on-the-ground perspective for what's happening there. Eunice Yoon, thank you. Still ahead, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And there are several companies that might need to reinvent themselves if they want to survive in the post-pandemic world. We'll have a look at who's best positioned for a second act next. Welcome back. Peloton shares plummeting today, down more than 18% after a week report. In a shareholder letter, CEO Barry McCarthy comparing the company's attempted turnaround to trying to turn a fast-moving cargo ship, saying, quote, we've sounded the alarm for general quarters, everyone's at their station. He goes on to say, when the ship will respond is the question. He's hoping for 2023. And he's betting that a partnership with Amazon is going to help get them there. Shares down 93% from their all-time high. And what about some of the other pandemic darlings? Zoom down 86% as they mow a Zoom phone. Zoom phone's actually doing pretty well in efforts to compete with Microsoft. And Meta is down 56% as they try to go all in on the metaverse. Will the pivots work? Let's bring in Duncan Davidson, partner at Bullpen Capital. Let's start with Peloton. Is this Amazon partnership going to cannibalize them or lead them to the land of cash flow? Well, I think um, that they're on the right track in their turnaround. You may not know this, but I was on CNBC the day they went public. And I said it's a terrific product, but it's not a tech stock. WeWork wasn't a tech stock either. It never deserved a tech stock type of multiple. Right now, it's probably fairly valued. What do they do, though? What's their reinvention? Their product sales have tanked, but their subscriptions have stayed strong. They have found a core set of customers, call them really serious fitness people, and they should serve that customer base. Hmm. And that means to move from product sales to the subscription service sales and get as broadly distributed as they can for their service business. Okay, I guess we'll see if that works. What about Zoom? Arguably, it doesn't have the same inventory challenges, but it's down quite a bit. Is their, uh, is their pivot more possible? Oh, I think their reinvention, which is a suite of software to do a frontal assault on Microsoft, is a really weak idea. 
you're not going to beat Microsoft at this game. They could raise price here, lower price there, and go after you. They need a better reinvention. Now, they should be able to figure it out. For example, telepresence, having a video conference feel that's much more immersive than just a talking head and a screen, they need to innovate there. Or maybe they should actually think outside of the box and say, well, we're a real-time video streaming platform. What else could we do with this thing than just try to become another part of the Microsoft universe? Yeah, they tried to buy 5.9. I think their, their story would be quite different if they were able to double down on the enterprise months ago. Finally, Meta, is it as bad over there as it looks? Is the Metaverse thing going to pan out, or do they really just looking for an ecosystem where they can have more margin and more control? I think, well, first of all, Meta, I never met an idea I didn't like. This may be the first one. They have a real challenge outside of gaming. There's three billion or so gamers, so they could probably make a go of it with gamers. But that's not what Facebook is doing. They are turning the metaverse into a joke. There was a recent article saying that uh, Zuckerberg's eyes, cartoon eyes are as dead as the metaverse. VR meetings, VR social networks, that seems overkill. You're not going to wear the goggles. People do use the goggles for other things, concert, events, training. We have an investment in a company using the goggles for very complicated molecular manipulation to create pharma drugs. So there are some applications for this. But that's like where I, I don't think that's where this is going to go. I'll give you a story. If you look at the old Apple when Steve Jobs was there, they had videos in the 80s about iPads but it took them over 20 years to wait for the technology to be ready to launch the iPad. This is an example of a technology way ahead of the need. Yeah. People go on the goggles thinking they're in the matrix and they see little cartoon avatars with no legs. It's nuts. I'm middle-aged now, but I'd rather have a conversation <laughs> with a 2D real person like you right now than a 3D avatar. What do I need to see an avatar for? I feel like I'm really talking to you and I, Enjoy that. Duncan Davidson, thank you. Take care. Still ahead, the NFL officially kicking off its shift into streaming while kicking it into another gear with tonight's preseason game on Amazon Video. More on what to expect and what it means in the war for content is next. Welcome back. If you are planning to watch the 49ers-Texans preseason game tonight, Amazon Prime Video is the only place where you're going to find it. Julia Borston joins me with more on the NFL's official kickoff into streaming. And Julia, I, I assume Amazon's got to measure the success of this in Prime signups in Texas and California and Jersey sales. Well, yeah, there are all sorts of ways they're going to be trying to figure out how this is boosting their bottom line. And tonight's preseason game is the first time the NFL is broadcasting exclusively on Prime Video. Now, if you're going to watch and you're not in market, you do have to subscribe to Amazon Prime. So the same is true for the 15 regular season games that Amazon will stream starting September 15th. This is part of a strategy to draw and retain Prime subscribers that Amazon is spending $1 billion on annually 
for the next 11 years. Morgan Stanley predicting this investment will result in about $450 million of incremental ad revenue per season, writing, quote, on an absolute basis, the incremental ad revenue is likely to be small. But the strategic rationale of the incremental content investments to build, maintain the prime ecosystem is more powerful. But Rosenblatt, more skeptical, warning, quote, divorced from the pay TV ecosystem that drives hefty affiliate fees, we're not sure how this pencils out better for Amazon than for Fox. Fox had those, those uh, games last year. Now, Amazon is reportedly telling advertisers to expect ratings to decline from last year's Fox games. And one source tells me that the league won't be surprised if initial viewership is half of what it was last year. Though over time, they do expect streaming viewership to exceed linear TV ratings. Now, as the season kicks off, the question is whether Amazon will secure Sunday ticket rights as it bids against Apple, Google's YouTube, and Disney's ESPN. John? All right. Well, we've run down the clock on The Exchange. Julia, thank you. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.